Hi friends, I'm Tierney and I'm Shelby and we're Dead Dead Drunk. Hey guys, welcome back. Hi friends. We're so glad that you can make it. Yeah. I was getting worried you guys would stop <laughs> listening, but here we are. Thank God. I think we're just going to jump in this week because it's kind of a long case, right, Shell? Yeah, it's kind of a big one, but you guys requested this. This case was requested by Mountainside underscore Danny oh. on Instagram. Thank you, Danny, for the suggestion. He said... Elizabeth Short, a.k.a. The Black Dahlia, look it up. It's an amazing case. So <laughs> we did just that. He wasn't wrong. So I dove right into it. And like I said, if you checked out the website, I'm not one for brevity. So this one's going to be a long one. But I tried to give you guys as much as I possibly could on this because, spoiler alert, there's no answer. We don't <sighs> know. It's, it's funny, unsolved. too. It's funny because you originally texted me and said yeah i think this will be a a mini case and then a couple hours later you're like well it's 12 pages long so i didn't know (laughs) i didn't know how much i was gonna find on it and there's so much out there Mm -hmm. so our drink this week is a cocktail that's currently served at the biltmore hotel which will come up later in our case it's called the black dahlia and it what you're gonna do is take vodka, chambord, if I'm saying that wrong, it's fine, Hopman, black raspberry liqueur, <laughs> and Kahlua, mix it together, pour that into a drink, probably over ice, because ice is the way ice, to drink ice, drinks. baby. Exactly. Ding, 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 ding. It does taste bitter, but probably appropriately. I literally know nothing about this case, so I'm really excited. Nothing at all? No, nothing at all. Literally nothing at all. Oh, okay. So here we go. On January 15th, 1947, Los Angeles resident Betty Berzinger discovered the naked body of a woman on the west side of South Norton Avenue while out on a morning walk with her three-year-old daughter. Of course, Betty initially thought it was just a mannequin. They always think it's a mannequin and it's never a mannequin. It never is, guys. So, So this is what you should do in this case. Betty ran to the nearest house and called the police. She had to run to the nearest house because it's 1947. I want to keep reminding you. Yeah, if that happens to you, just use your cell phone like a normal person. I would also run for for people. Yeah, I would probably (laughs) run away as fast as I could. It was immediately obvious to the police that the body had been cleaned by the killer and then specifically positioned on the side of the road in the neighborhood of Lemert Park. The body was severed at the waist and completely drained of blood. The top portion of the body was arranged with the arms above the head as if surrendering to something. The lower half of the body was found about six inches to the west of the torso. Oh my God. And this half was positioned with the legs spread wide open with her intestines tucked underneath (gasps) her buttocks. No. Wait. Yeah. So they were like coming out of her stomach and tucked. Well, she was cut in half. So yes. Oh yeah. Yep. Oh yeah. The body was left lying just off of the sidewalk, clearly meant to be found. Oh, my God. No. 
In the surrounding area, the police found a heel print on the ground in the middle of some tire tracks, along with a few 50-pound cement sacks and fertilizer sacks with watery blood on them. There was no other blood found at the crime scene, indicating to the police that this wasn't where the murder took place. Right. And those cement and fertilizer sacks were used to transport the body. Like she was on them. Yep. Presumably because they had already washed her, so they weren't going to touch her again. Right. Oh, my God. So very calculated. Mm -hmm. Obviously, somebody that has probably murdered before. Maybe. I would assume. Since this is L.A., it didn't take long for a crowd of both interested passers-by and reporters to gather around the crime scene. Aggie Underwood, a reporter for the Los Angeles Herald Express, was one of the first to arrive and managed to take several photos of the corpse. The newspapers initially declared this the werewolf murder, based on the grisly crime scene. After speaking with people who knew the victim, however, they learned that her dark hair had earned her the nickname Black Dahlia. It was a twist on the name of the 1946 film The Blue Dahlia. An FBI official website explained that Short received the first part of the nickname from the press for her rumored penchant for sheer black clothes. The name stuck to the story, however, which had now spread across the country. In the next 24 hours, the papers would have a name to go with the mysterious Jane Doe. To the police, she was known as Jane Doe Number 1. Before the autopsy began, the police had been able to send copies of the victim's fingerprints to Washington, D.C. through a system known as Sound Photo, which was just a really primitive version of a fax machine. The prints were quickly matched with those from an arrest record from 1943, and the corpse was identified as Elizabeth Short. Short was born on July 29, 1924, in the Hyde Park section of Boston, Massachusetts. I was like, Hyde Park? Like, did you see Hyde Park? <laughs> no. Boston. She was the third of five daughters of Cleo and Phoebe May Short. When Short was about three, the family relocated to Portland, Maine for a short time before finally settling in Medford, Massachusetts, later in 1927. Short was raised in Medford and spent most of her life in the Boston suburb. Her father built miniature golf courses until the 1929 stock market crash when he lost most of his savings and the family became broke. The next year, his car was discovered abandoned on the Charlestown Bridge, and it was assumed that he had committed suicide by jumping into the Charles River. Now believing that her husband was dead, Phoebe Short took a job as a bookkeeper and moved into a small apartment in Medford with her five daughters. After suffering from bronchitis and severe asthma attacks, Short underwent lung surgery at age 15. The doctors then suggested that she relocate to a milder climate during the winter months to prevent any further respiratory issues. So Short's mother sent her to spend winters in Miami, Florida with some family friends. Which I would love. Can a doctor give me that diagnosis? Yeah, please. <laughs> for the next three years, Short would relocate to Florida for the winter months and then spend the rest of the year in Medford with her mother and sisters. She's like a goose. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's offensive to say, but like she migrates south for the winter. Yeah. I don't find it offensive. Okay. In late 1942, Short's mother received an apology letter from the husband that she thought had died almost 12 years earlier. The letter revealed that he was, in fact, very much alive and living his new life in California, where he was working in the Mare Island Naval Shipyard on San Francisco Bay. In December of that same year, Short relocated to Vallejo, California, to live with her father, despite not having seen the man since she was six years old. It didn't take long for the arguments between the two to be too much, and in January of 1943, Short moved out of her father's place. 
She found a job at the base exchange at Camp Cook, which is now the Vanderburg Air Force Base. She lived with several friends for a period of time before briefly moving in with an Army Air Force sergeant who allegedly abused her. Then, in mid-1943, Short moved to Santa Barbara, where she was arrested for underage drinking on September 23, 1943. The juvenile authorities sent her back to Medford, but Short instead moved herself to Florida and only made occasional visits to Massachusetts. While she was living in Florida, Short met Major Matthew Michael Gordon Jr. What a name. <laughs> Gordon was a decorated Army Air Force officer at the 2nd Air Commando Group. At the time the two met, he was training for deployment to the China-Burma-India Theater of Operations of World War II, which is just that Southeast Asia area. After his deployment, the two stayed in contact through letters. While Gordon was recovering from a plane crash in India, he wrote Short to ask her to marry him upon his return, and Short excitedly told her friends that she had accepted his offer. But sadly, Gordon died in a second plane crash on August 10, 1945, less than a week before the surrender of Japan ended the war. No. It's really sad. The 40s are a really sad time. Yeah. In July 1946, Short relocated to Los Angeles after enjoying a visit with Army Air Force Lieutenant Joseph Gordon Fickling, whom she had met in Florida. Short worked as a waitress and rented a room behind the Florentine Gardens nightclub on Hollywood Boulevard. Some sources say that Short did have aspirations to be a film star, but she never had any known acting jobs or credits. She never really got the chance. Six months after arriving in Los Angeles, her body was discovered. Right after the body was identified, reporters from Hearst's... You know who William Randolph Hearst is, right? Yes, because I've seen Newsies, obviously. Yep. So, one of Hearst's newspapers, the Los Angeles Examiner, contacted her mother, Phoebe Short, in Boston and told her that her daughter had won a beauty contest. Only after getting as much personal information as possible out of her did they tell her that... Her daughter had, in fact, been murdered. And then the Hearst publication offered to pay for her airfare and hotel accommodations so that she could travel to Los Angeles and assist the police with the investigation. Unfortunately, this was just another ploy by the newspaper, and when Phoebe arrived, the reporters made every effort to keep her away from the police and all other reporters to protect their inside scoop. Oh my god, I'm literally outraged by that. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? Oh, your daughter won a contest. Just kidding. She's dead. Yeah, they called her and said, Beth won a beauty contest. And then tried to get as much personal information as they could out of Phoebe before telling her, oh, she's actually dead. Why did the police not contact her first? Well, it's 1947 and we're in L.A. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine. Yeah. I can't answer why the police didn't contact her first. I don't I don't really know. But I would imagine that after Aggie Underwood got those photos, she immediately contacted the office. And as soon as she was identified, they jumped. The police probably didn't even have a chance. People are shitty. Mm -hmm. Both the Examiner and another Hearst newspaper, the Los Angeles Herald Express, sensationalized the case with one article describing the black tailored suit that Short was last seen wearing as, quote, a tight skirt, and a sheer blouse. They started describing her as an adventurous who prowled Hollywood Boulevard. On January 17th, another newspaper, the Los Angeles Times, began calling the murder a sex fiend slaying, despite having no evidence that Short was promiscuous or that anything at all sexual had happened to her on the night she was murdered. So because she looked sexy, they were like, oh, she's a slut, that's why she's dead. 
Yep. She's a young, attractive woman. So it's her fault. That's I'm so mad right now. On January 16th, Frederick Newbar, the L.A. County coroner, performed an autopsy of the body. Newbar determined that the victim had been 5'5", weighed 115 pounds, and had light blue eyes, brown hair, and badly decayed teeth. He also found a variety of marks on Short's body that gave him disturbing details of what she suffered through before and after her death. This is what the autopsy report said, according to Steve Hodell, who is currently a retired police detective with an interesting tie to the case that I will get into later. Warning, this is going to be grisly, graphic, and gross. So if you don't want to hear it, go ahead and hit that skip ahead 15 seconds. That should probably do it. They found ligature marks on her feet, hands, and neck, indicating that she had been bound. There were eight cigarette burns on her back, a laceration to her upper lip, tic-tac-toe grid-style scalpel cuts on her right hip, another scalpel laceration about two inches in length on her left nipple, and her right breast had been completely removed. In addition to those wounds, her mouth had been slashed from the corners to her ears to form a permanent smile, also known as a Glasgow smile. Like the Joker. Mm Mm-hmm. There was also evidence of sodomy with an unknown object and a large section of flesh had been removed from her left thigh and then inserted into her vagina. Another incision ran from the umbilicus to superpubic, which is consistent with a hysterectomy. They discovered that the body had been washed down with a coconut fiber brush to remove any fingerprints and finally examined the contents of her stomach. And this is the part that is really gross in her stomach the detectives discovered a greenish brown substance but mostly they found feces which (sighs) led them to the conclusion that the victim had been forced to eat it shortly before she was murdered i'm so sorry (laughs) i i i don't i don't know what to say that's literally awful yeah So although the skull was not fractured, there was some bruising and a small amount of bleeding on the front and right side of her scalp, indicating that the victim was struck in the head. The shock from those blows to the head combined with the hemorrhaging from the lacerations on her face were ultimately determined to be the cause of death. I didn't find anything saying whether or not all those other things were before or after, Mm -hmm. but the cutting in half was after okay well no it's not i was gonna say that's good but that's not i mean (laughs) none of it's good so they didn't have very many leads to go on since there was no such thing as dna evidence in the 40s and the body had been completely washed down with i don't know how they knew it was coconut fibers but it was basically doused in gasoline which will remove fingerprints So what they did have was the specific method that was used to cut the body in half. The body had been cut in half using a method taught in the 1930s called hemicorporectomy. Bless you. (laughs) Yeah, I hope I pronounced that right. This technique was typically used to amputate the lower half of the body at the waist by transecting the lumbar spine between the second and third lumbar vertebrae to sever the intestine and duodenum. Basically, it meant you wouldn't have to cut through bone if you did this method. 
So Newbar noted that there was very little bruising around the incision line, meaning that the body had been cut after death. Which, again, you're right, is not good, but some solace. better than if she was alive when that happened. Yeah. It was also a completely clean cut, meaning that it was most likely made by someone with surgical training. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, that it was somebody that's done that before. Mm Mm-hmm. Because how else would they know to do it like that? If it's just anybody with normal knowledge that is not surgical, they wouldn't know to cut it in half that way, right? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking is it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't a hack job, which is what you would expect to see from somebody that just went into their garage and got a tool and cut somebody in half. I hope that nobody's just done that. Please don't do that. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, you wouldn't, if I was going to cut anything in half, I cut wrapping paper at Christmas and it looked like Oh yeah, bad. It was a massacre. No, I can't even cut paper. Um, And I'm a teacher and I cut a lot of paper and I can't even do it. I don't know. I feel like that narrows down the suspect pool a kind of a lot. No? It did a little bit. For That's what lead investigator Lieutenant Frank Jemison used to narrow it down from 316 suspects to 107. Okay. That included weeding out 19 false confessions. There were probably a lot more than that, but Jemison then took a deeper look at those 107 suspects and created a list of only six that he recommended that police focus on. Now, I haven't been able to find that list of six, but I did find the list of 25 that the police were focusing on. Okay. But before they could look into the 25 or the six, the media coverage had tempted a killer to come forward. On January 21st, 1947, James Richardson, the editor of The Examiner, received a phone call from a person who claimed to be Elizabeth Short's killer. The man congratulated Richardson on his coverage of the case before explaining that he planned on eventually turning himself in, but would first allow the police to pursue him and try to catch him. Then the man told Richardson to, quote, expect some souvenirs of Beth Short in the mail. I had, like three episodes of full body chills <laughs> in that <laughs> sentence three days later a manila envelope was discovered by a u.s postal worker no they found what looked like individual words cut and pasted from newspaper clippings on the envelope which indicated that it was addressed to the los angeles examiner and other los angeles papers the same cut and paste style was used to create a large message on the front of the envelope that read here is dahlia's belongings letter to follow inside the envelope reporters found shorts birth certificate business cards photographs names written on pieces of paper and an address book with the name mark hansen embossed on the cover the packet of items had been carefully cleaned with gasoline just like shorts body which led investigators to believe that these things came directly from the killer okay i have a couple of questions mm-hmm. number one who like how would they get her birth certificate i don't even know where my birth certificate is I don't know. Like, I I would imagine that in 1947, that it's it's more common to have your birth certificate like on you. Yeah, is that like your form of ID? I would hope not, but I think that if she was traveling from one side of the country to the other, she might have it. It. I, I thought sense. it was weird too. It was a weird thing to have. Yeah, I would like if that this was a case that happened today and somebody had their birth certificate, I would automatically think it was somebody close to them like a mother or mm-hmm. a father. Yeah. I didn't have that thought. I just thought 
Oh, that's like a weird thing. But yeah. <laughs> and then also, how do you clean a birth certificate with gasoline and not have it like? I don't know. <laughs> okay. All right. I don't know that he might not have. He. I'm just assuming it's a he. The killer might not have even really touched it. Mm. They might have had gloves, gloves on, on to yeah, put it true. in the packet. The packet itself that all this stuff was in inside the manila envelope had been cleaned okay. with gasoline. All right, all right. So despite those efforts, they did manage to pull partial fingerprints from the envelope and they sent that to the FBI. Unfortunately, the prints were compromised in transit and could not be properly analyzed. Oh my God. Yeah, 1940s law enforcement officers um, were not on the ball apparently. Yeah. On the same day, a handbag and a black suede shoe were found on top of a garbage can in an alley just two miles away from Norton Avenue where her body was discovered. These items had also been wiped down with gasoline, so no fingerprints were found. Hmm. So now we come to Mark Hansen. Dun, dun, dun. So Mark Hansen was the one who positively identified the handbag and the shoe as Elizabeth Shorts. Now I can tell you who he was. Mark Hansen was a wealthy man who owned a local nightclub and theater. He was also one of the acquaintances that had allowed Short and a few friends to stay with him at his home. One of Short's friends and roommates, Ann Toth, told investigators that Short had recently rejected Hansen's sexual advances and even suggested it as the possible motive for the murder. One okay. of the... Yeah. This, so this guy sounds like a pretty good suspect. Yeah, that's what I thought. He's definitely on the list of 25. One of the other men that Short was seeing was Robert Red Manley, a 25-year-old married salesman who was seeing Elizabeth Short on the side. Um, okay, so there's a motive right there if she was going to like tell the wife or something, or if the wife found out. Yeah, Manley was a particularly interesting suspect to the police as he had been the last person to see her alive. On January 9th, 1947, about five days before the murder, Short returned home from a brief trip to San Diego with Manley. Manley told the investigators that he dropped Short off at the Biltmore Hotel at 506 Grand Avenue in downtown Los Angeles, which you can still go to today and you can drink the Black Dahlia cocktail out. Manley also told the police that Short had planned to meet up with her sister who had been visiting from Boston that afternoon. Some of the staff at the Biltmore reported having seen Short using the lobby telephone just before she was seen at the Crown Grill Cocktail Lounge, which was just about one half mile from the hotel. Manley was eventually cleared of suspicion as well after passing numerous polygraph examinations. Okay, but a polygraph means nothing. It means nothing in court. No, but like there are ways that you can pass a polygraph even if you're the trick. Okay, ready? So Ben Platt, love of my life in the politician on netflix if you haven't seen it watch it but there is a character in it that passes a polygraph even when she's lying and she's like the trick to passing a polygraph if you're lying is to make the control questions seem like you're nervous answering them so like when they say like what's your name she would do short breaths and be like and then say and then say so if someone was like what's your name i'd be like tyranny and then it would register as me having anxiety answering those questions so that sets the control so then if I have anxiety or if I'm nervous answering any of the other questions compared to the control it's the same and they think that I'm telling the truth that's very interesting 
It's very interesting. I know. It's a pretty so, cool way to So, just saying, it. polygraphs mean nothing. Okay. Still, they cleared him. So, using what seemed to be their only hope, the investigators interviewed several people listed in Hansen's address book, including Martin Lewis, who had also been an acquaintance of Short's. Lewis was able to provide an airtight alibi, however, since he had been in Portland, Oregon, visiting his father-in-law, who was dying of kidney failure. A total of 750 investigators from the LAPD, 400 sheriff's deputies, and 250 California State Patrol officers worked on the case during the initial stages of the investigation, not to mention the various other law enforcement departments like the FBI that got involved. Multiple locations were searched for potential evidence, including storm drains through Los Angeles, abandoned structures, and several sites along the Los Angeles River, but no further evidence was found. City Councilman Lloyd G. Davis posted a $10,000 reward, which is now equivalent to $114,501, for any information leading police to Short's killer. After this announcement, numerous people came forward with confessions, most of which were false, which just ended up in an obstruction of justice charge. So don't falsely confess to anything. <laughs> On January 26, 1947, another letter was sent to the examiner, this time handwritten. It read, quote, Here it is. Turning in Wednesday, January 29th, 10 a.m. Had my fun at police. Black Dahlia Avenger. The letter also named a location at which the supposed murderer would turn himself in. But when the police showed up at that location on the morning of January 29th, no killer showed up. Instead, at 1 p.m. that same day, the examiner received another cut-and-pasted letter which read, Have changed my mind. You would not give me a square deal. Dahlia killing was justified. In addition to these letters... Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you want (laughs) to... It was justified that I cut this woman in half. Yeah, I I have no idea. Completely justified. All these ridiculous letters from Black Dahlia Avenger are just like, I'm going to turn myself in. (laughs) No, I'm not. Just kidding. In addition to those letters, the Herald Express, Hearst's other publication, received several additional letters from the alleged killer, again made with cut and pasted clippings. One of those letters read, quote, I will give up on Dahlia killing if I get 10 years. Don't try to find me. Theory. Yep, maybe it was William Randolph Hearst that did it because he wanted his paper to get really popular. Interestingly enough, and I didn't look into this theory because I just found it immediately ridiculous, yeah. is you know that Citizen Kane is about William Randolph Hearst and Orson Welles plays? I've never seen Citizen Kane. Okay, so Orson, well- Orson Welles plays the main character, which is like based off of William Randolph Hearst. And Orson Welles is like a theory <laughs> where like he kind of I don't know why <laughs> oh my god <laughs> I read his name and thought that's absolutely yeah. ridiculous so <laughs> the letters combined with the exceptionally graphic nature of the crime resulted in a media frenzy around Short's murder local and national publications covered the story heavily however most of the information they reported was false Many of them printed some sensationalized reports that suggested Short had been tortured for hours prior to her death, which the autopsy would actually support. So, but there's no actual real evidence saying that. Um, I mean, there is, but 
we don't know. Mm-hmm. The police allowed the spread of this misinformation in order to conceal Short's real cause of death, which was cerebral hemorrhage from the public. That way, if anybody came forward with it... Right. The, the that killer... That was actually smart. Yeah, that was smart because then the, the killer, if it was real, would know that, but if it was a false confession, they mm-hmm. wouldn't. The media even sensationalized reports from her personal life, like the details about her allegedly declining Hanson's sexual advances towards her. Additionally, a stripper who was another acquaintance of Short's told investigators that she, quote, liked to get guys worked up over her, but she'd leave them hanging dry. This then led some reporters and even detectives to look into the possibility of Short being a lesbian. They began questioning employees and patrons of gay bars in Los Angeles, but this claim was never substantiated. I guess in 1947 it mattered. I'm like, why does it fucking matter if she's a lesbian? It really doesn't matter. I think it only mattered for them to see what circles she was yeah, in so. in Los Angeles, but we'll get more into that rumor later. Okay. On February 1st, the Los Angeles Daily News reported that the case had, quote, run into a stone wall since investigators had no new leads to pursue. So they were right. Despite having no new information, the examiner continued to run stories on the murder and its investigation as its front page news for 35 days after the discovery of the body. Lead investigator Captain Jack Donahue told the press that he believed Short had been murdered in a remote building on the outskirts of Los Angeles and her body had been transported into the city to be disposed of. Judging by the precise cuts and dissection of Short's corpse, the LAPD looked into the possibility of the murder being someone with medical training. In mid-February 1947, the LAPD served a warrant for the University of Southern California Medical School, which was located not too far from the site where Short's body was discovered. In the warrant, the investigators requested a complete list of the program students so they could conduct background searches on each and every one. Unfortunately, they yielded no results. On March 14th, what appeared to be a suicide note was found tucked in a shoe in a pile of men's clothing by the edge of the ocean at the end of Breeze Avenue in Venice Beach. The note read, quote, To whom it may concern, I had waited for the police to capture me for the Black Dahlia killing, but have not. I am too much of a coward to turn myself in, so this is the best way out for me. I couldn't help myself for that or this. Sorry, Mary. This pile of clothing, which included a coat, tweed trousers, a brown and white shirt, white jockey shorts, tan socks, and size 8 tan moccasin-style leisure shoes, was first spotted by a beach caretaker, who then reported it to the lifeguard captain, John Dillon. Dillon immediately notified Captain Ellie Christensen of the West Los Angeles Police, which is a different department because there's so many. Mm. None of the clothes gave any clue as to the owner's identity, and the police were again left with no leads. I feel like I don't... I don't know about that one. I don't really know what to think about that one either because at this point there are so many false confessions and yeah. false leads. It's And like obviously the mental health of this person was not the best because they committed suicide, right? Supposedly. Nobody found the body. We ju- They just found oh, a note. Yeah. It seems like a supposed suicide note. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, they didn't know what to make of that. Wasn't either. there a heel marking in the tire near her body? Were they able to take anything from that? Could they determine if this guy's eight size eight moccasins no. were matched it? No. Okay. No, I think they need the rest of the shoe. Yeah, I guess that makes to sense. determine. All right. Yeah. Darn it. Yeah. So, unfortunately, the case went cold. 
One of the other lead detectives on lead detectives on the case, Sergeant Finnis Brown, blamed the press for this, which is a solid reasoning, stating that the reporter's search for details and use of unverified information compromised the investigation. I can see that happening. Yeah. It essentially went viral in yeah. 1947 cents, where it spread across the entire right. country. And like in solving a case, you want people to know about it, but I feel like too much information was released. Mm-hmm. I do, I do think that keeping all of this misinformation out there did do them a service. Right. In that if anybody mentions anything about cerebral hemorrhaging or blunt force trauma to the head, which nobody is nobody else knew about that. Yeah. Right. So, but it didn't didn't lead to solving it. So, in September of 1949, two years after Short's murder, a grand jury convened to discuss the inadequacies of the LAPD's homicide unit. Over the past several years, the department had failed to solve multiple murders, especially those of women and children, one of them being Elizabeth Short's case. This isn't to say that the LAPD were not doing their job. The detectives took over 2,700 reports and named over 300 suspects in relation to Short's killings. So, so why had they failed in catching so many killers? I don't know, and neither did the grand jury. So they, the grand jury even got sidetracked completely at one point by the criminal activity of a local gangster, Mickey Cohen, as well as other issues that demanded immediate attention. So they ended up passing the issues of the unsolved missing persons and homicide cases to the 1950 grand jury, who also found themselves distracted by various other issues and found no answer. In the aftermath of the grand jury, further investigation was done into Short's past. Detectives traced her movements between Massachusetts, California, and Florida. They even interviewed people who knew her in Texas and New Orleans. But still, none of these efforts gave them any new leads. Hi, friends. This episode is brought to you in part by Tipsy Chicks. If you're looking for a unique, fun gift for a birthday, wedding, bachelorette, or just a fun night out, you should visit tipsychicks.com. It's an all-woman-owned business that encompasses a variety of gift items that make fantastic gifts. Their products are original and cost-effective. From their unique magnetic drink charms in over 100 varieties, to a bracelet flask that literally unscrews and you can put alcohol in your bracelet, Tipsy Chicks has the perfect trendy gifts that everyone will love, and they can even customize your gift if you would like. So you have to check out their website. You will not be disappointed. Go to tipsychicks.com for your fabulously fun gift needs. That's T-I-P-S-Y-C-H-I-C-S dot com. You're going to love it. If you go to the website, use code DEADDRUNK for 20% off any order at tipsychicks.com. That's code D-E-A-D-D-R-U-N-K for 20% off your order. What are you still doing? Not on their website. Do it now. Elizabeth Short's case has remained cold all these years and is still unsolved to this day. There has been no shortage of theories and suspects thrown around, some of which still remain under discussion by authors and experts in the subject of true crime. Here are just a few of those. Several authors, as well as Cleveland detective Peter Marillow, so sorry, you know that I'm bad with names, believed there's a connection between Elizabeth Short's slaying and the Cleveland Torso murders. These murders 
consisted of at least 12 known victims between 1934 and 1938. This particular serial killer was known to dismember his victims and then dispose of them in the poor neighborhood of Kingsbury. In the original investigation, the LAPD did look into the torso murders, but ended up discounting any possible relation between the two cases. Because they were too different? I think because it just the timeline didn't match up. Oh, that too. In 1980, new evidence implicating former torso murder suspect Jack Anderson Wilson, also known as Arnold Smith, was investigated in relation to Short's murder. Detective John P. St. James. Sorry, I wanted to say St. James, but his name is John P. St. John. (laughs) John St. John, if you're listening. I'm so sorry that that's your name. Anyway, St. John claimed that this new evidence had brought him so close to arresting Wilson for Short's murder. But unfortunately, Wilson died in a fire before St. John got the chance to charge him with the crime. This possible connection between the Black Dahlia case and the Cleveland Torso murders brought it some new attention. In 1992, when the case was profiled on the NBC series Unsolved Mysteries, Oscar Fraley, who wrote a biography of Elliot Ness, the man famous for taking down Al Capone, actually suggested that Ness knew the identity of the culprit in both cases. So I guess Elliot Ness knows who's responsible for the Cleveland Torso murders and Elizabeth Short. But nobody bothered to ask him. Interesting. Another murder that happened just under a month after Short's death was also considered by the media and law enforcement as possibly connected. On February 10th, 1947, the body of Jean French, or Jeanne French, again, sorry about names, was discovered in West Los Angeles on Grandview Boulevard, nude and badly beaten. There was a message written in lipstick on her stomach reading, Fuck you, BD, and the letters T-E-X written just below it. The Herald Express covered the story heavily, drawing comparisons between the two murders immediately and even reporting that the letters BD stood for Black Dahlia. After examining the evidence, however, historian John Lewis actually discovered that the scrawled message read PD, meaning the police department. So there's there's no real connection. That's too bad. Crime authors like William Rasmussen, no relation to Sherry, suggested a link between Short's murder and the 1946 murder and dismemberment of six-year-old Suzanne Degnan in Chicago, Illinois. In January 1946, a year before Elizabeth Short's murder, Suzanne was kidnapped from her home in Chicago. After receiving an anonymous tip a few days later, the police discovered her dismembered body in the sewers nearby. Initially, a janitor in the building where the Degnans lived was arrested and charged with the murder. However, when the police arrested William Heinrens in the summer of 1946 for committing a burglary in the Degnans' neighborhood, he confessed to killing Suzanne. Heinrens was linked to two additional murders from 1945 during this trial and was ultimately sentenced to three consecutive life terms. LAPD Captain Donahue has openly expressed his belief that these two murders are connected. First, he pointed out that Short's body was discovered on Norton Avenue, which is just three blocks west of Degnan Boulevard. Since Degnan was the last name of Little Suzanne, he believed it was a clue pointing them to their killer. Secondly, Donahoe and fellow believers in crime authors Steve Hodell, who I've mentioned earlier, and William Rasmussen, point to the similarities between the handwriting on the ransom note for the Degnans and that of the Black Dahlia Avenger, who sent all those letters to the press. Weren't all of those, like, newspaper clippings? How did they... Some of... One of them, at least, was handwritten. Okay. 
So from those handwriting, they can tell that both pieces of writing used an odd combination of capitals and lowercase letters, and they both contained a misshapen P and one identical word. Even more telling is the fact that both Suzanne and Elizabeth's bodies had been dismembered and drained of blood. Okay, so this sounds like their guy. It does, doesn't it? Except it would have been impossible for Heinrich to commit the murder of Elizabeth Short as he was already serving out his multiple life sentences in Illinois Penitentiary at the time of the slaying. Is there a way that he wasn't working alone either of the times and that maybe somebody that he worked with was still out there? It's possible, but Susan Degnan was also killed in Chicago. He's being held in Illinois. So I... I, I'm not going to put it out of the realm of possibility that they right. could that he could have had a partner that did this for him, but I'm going to say it's fairly unlikely. But like identical words, like how did they? I I'm not sure what the identical word is, but one is a ransom note and one is a note about a murder, so it's also likely that they had similar words. There, I mean. Yeah, I know, but like the handwriting, they like that's what they were talking about. Right? The word looked the same. Their handwriting. The specific word isn't identical in handwriting. The word itself is the same word. Oh, okay. That's what I got out of it. Okay, that makes more sense. Yeah, I couldn't find the handwriting to compare it myself, but it, I mean, it does seem like it's pointing us in his direction, but again, it's not, it's not possible. Right. So I know I've mentioned Steve Hodel a couple times, and now I'm going to tell you why. He's a former Los Angeles homicide detective who believes that he actually knows who's responsible for the Black Dahlia murder. He believes that George Hodel, his father, is responsible for the murder. He actually had his suspicions earlier than this, but they were strengthened when he found that his father's name is the last one listed on Jemison's list of six. I just got full body chills. Mm-hmm. So George Hodel was actually one of the many suspects looked into by the LAPD during the initial investigation. However, he was never formally charged with the crime. After his death, his son, who I just mentioned, accused his father of this murder, but also another one. Hodel was also suspected in the death of his secretary, Ruth Spaulding. Oh, my God. But also not charged. According to Steve, Ruth had learned that George was not only performing illegal abortions, but also misdiagnosing patients with venereal diseases in order to charge them for treatments. So she found this out because a patient got a second opinion and did not, in fact, have gonorrhea. So so he was just like, you have gonorrhea. Now yeah. you have to pay this money for the treatment, even though they were completely fine. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. So one night. Steve says his mother received a call from Hodel asking her to come to Ruth's downtown L.A. apartment as Ruth had fallen unconscious. Hodel told Steve's mother that Ruth had an overdose and then handed her a package of papers which he instructed her to burn. Those papers were the evidence of his medical misdeeds and financial scams against his patients, but Steve's mother just obediently burned them. When Steve's mother left to burn the papers, Hodel waited behind and just stood in the room waiting until Ruth was beyond help, which he would know because he was a trained doctor. Right. And then he called a cab and brought her to the hospital where she was declared dead. That is very suspicious. Yeah. 
George was something of a genius. The score that determines genius is 140. And when George took that test in high school, he scored a 180. Wait, I just realized something. I just got chills. What? He's a doctor. Mm -hmm. So he probably has the surgical experience to cut somebody in half Mm -hmm. the way that. Oh, my God. Yeah, so after he experimented with his creative side for a while, George went to UC Berkeley for four years and then to medical school, which included extensive surgical training. Steve actually found evidence on his father's transcript that he took hundreds of hours of surgical classes, meaning that he did have the surgical skills to pull off the dissection seen in Elizabeth Short's body. Oh my God, it was him. He also had the mental capacity to get away with this. He was a genius. Yeah, we always talk about like the IQ of... Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. In 2003, notes from the 1949 grand jury revealed that investigators had actually wiretapped Hodel's home, which is how they heard him tell an unidentified visitor, quote, Supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary because she's dead. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, my, I feel like there's somebody watching us through this window right now. I'm like, not okay. You have full on CBGBs. Oh, I hate this. Oh, my God. It was him. George Hodel is still on the current suspect list for the murder of the Black Dahlia. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sorry. My dog went under the table and touched Tierney. <laughs> Jenny heard you getting heebie-jeebies. I didn't and was know like, she was in here. <laughs> Hi, sweetheart. <laughs> so do you remember that Holy list crap. of 25 that I told you about? Yes. There are only three on that list of 25 that are still being considered as serious suspects. And he's one of them. Okay. Who are the other two? Uh, Mark Hansen and another doctor. Mm. So... The question with George Hodel, at least for me, is why? I didn't find the answer to it in this podcast, but if you want to dive further into the theory, you can listen to the eight-episode podcast, Root of Evil, which is hosted by two members of the Hodel family themselves. It's actually Steve's nieces, and Steve's recorded interviews are featured heavily in the podcast. Very cool. So another interesting theory is the idea of a police cover-up, which actually first surfaced during the early stages of the case. Agnes Underwood, which I mentioned earlier, who's the one that took all those pictures. Right, right. She had been working for the Herald Express for 12 years by the time the Black Dahlia case occurred. An LAPD homicide detective, Ray Geis, you know I'm bad with names, suggested the case to her while they were still searching for leads. Agnes was actually the reporter who covered the interview with the first suspect, Robert Manley. The morning after her interview with Manley, Agnes was suddenly taken off the case. After just two days, she was reassigned to the case, only to be almost immediately removed again. So instead of covering the story of the Black Dahlia, Agnes was assigned to work at a city desk. One theory on why Agnes was removed from the story is that she was getting too close to uncovering the truth behind Short's murder. If the LAPD were trying to protect the killer, then they could have her promoted away from further investigating the story. The theory of a police cover-up came up again during the 1949 grand jury investigation into the methods employed by the LAPD. While the 21 jurors did not have a suspect to indict for the murder of Elizabeth Short, they did have enough evidence to name Leslie Dillon as their prime suspect. 
Dylan was a bellhop and former mortician's assistant who had close ties with Mark Hansen, who owned the planner. And we've been mentioning. Bellhop at the hotel that she was last seen at? I didn't find what hotel he worked at, but he was a bellhop. So, yeah, probably. Okay. He had close ties with Mark Hansen, Jeff Connors, also known as Artie Lane, and Sergeant Finnis Brown who you might remember is one was one of the lead mm-hmm. detectives in the 2017 book black dahlia red rose by pew Eatwell. i'm sorry about your first name the author theorizes that short was murdered because she knew too much about the men's involvement in a scheme for robbing hotels Eatwell also suggests that short was killed at the astor motel in los angeles citing the fact that the owners reported finding one of their rooms quote Covered in blood and fecal matter. Oh my god. On the morning of Short's No, 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 no. Oh my god, he did it. I think you've said that a few times now. Oh my god. I'm gonna cry. I'm sorry. I don't know what to believe. Oh my god. I know. That's like a lot. This is what happened while I was researching this case, is I was just back and forth like, oh, that guy did it. Oh no. Wait, that guy did it. Oh no. So this is what I'm assuming Los Angeles police are currently going through. At least, well, Steve Hodell isn't. He is 100% certain his father did it. Anyway, in 1949, the examiner reported that the L.A. police chief William A. Wharton denied that the Flower Street or Astor Motel had anything to do with the case. But at the same time, its rival newspaper, the Los Angeles Herald, claimed the murder took place there. So... Again, the media is getting involved, but I would say that the claim that it was covered in blood and fecal matter on the morning that her body was discovered is enough to say yeah, she was probably murdered. If that's murdered true, there. then yeah. Mm-hmm. There was no okay. So there's a hotel room covered in blood and shit, and <laughs> nobody tested any. Like I guess it's the forties. It's the forties, so you couldn't. You couldn't test it like that, but... Do they know who was supposedly staying in that room? Again, I don't know if... This was a motel that they found it at. So I don't know if motels kept records like hotels. Gotcha. So I don't even know if hotels in the 40s kept records, but... Despite all of this circumstantial evidence surrounding Dylan, the grand jury never indicted him. The first reason cited by the jury was that Dylan had been illegally detained during the investigation. The second and more valid reason, at least to me, was the lack of concrete evidence against him. In the event that the case went to trial, a few witnesses stated that they were willing to take the stand and testify that Dylan was actually in San Francisco at the time of the murder. The LAPD believed these witnesses' claims lacked any credibility, but they still couldn't risk them convincing a jury of Dylan's innocence. However, Mark Hansen is still considered a possible suspect in Elizabeth Short's murder. Which makes sense. Mm-hmm. Dylan was actually completely cleared he was he was in San Francisco. Okay. That was proved. Ultimately, the grand jury stated the following in regards to police corruption. Quote, Deplorable conditions indicating corrupt practices and misconduct by some members of law enforcement agencies in the county... Alarming increase in the number of unsolved murders, jurisdictional disputes, and jealousies among law enforcement agencies. There were a few different things that could have been influencing the investigation, but a blog I found that's titled Deranged LA Crimes has a different answer. 
Author Joan Renner suggests that, quote, the police were doing solid detective work, but their investigative methods hadn't caught up with the times. There were men walking the streets of Los Angeles who were severely damaged by their war experiences. How many of them were capable of murder? And this, I thought, was a pretty fair point. At this point, it's 1947, so these men have seen at least one war, some maybe two. So it's possible. Yeah. That, yeah. And there was no actual mental health back then. They just right, like, right, stuck right. you in an insane asylum. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. The grand jury did find a multitude of police corruption stemming from some of the highest ranking officers. The jealousy mentioned was pretty common among members of the LAPD, which unfortunately meant that important case information would often not get passed along properly. The good thing to come out of the grand jury was the following shakeup that ran through the entire LAPD, which included the dismissal of the current police chief. So they did do something good. In 2000, Buzz Williams, a retired detective of the Long Beach Police Department, wrote an article for the department's newsletter on Short's murder. In the article, Williams writes that his father, Richard F. Williams, and his father's friend, Con Keller, he's not a con, that's his name, were both members of L.A.'s gangster squad that investigated Short's case. Williams Sr. believed that Dylan was the killer and alleged that when Dylan returned to his home in Oklahoma, his wife's close ties to Governor Adlai Stevenson II of Illinois helped him avoid extradition to California. But we know it wasn't him. Keller had a different theory. He believed that Hansen was the killer since he had studied at a surgical school in Sweden and would often host prominent LAPD officials at his lavish parties. The article goes on to explain that Dylan actually sued the LAPD for $3 million, but for whatever reason, the suit was dropped. Larry Harnich, a retired copy editor for The Times, has since disputed the claim, asserting his belief that there was no big cover-up of the case at all. Harnich stated that Dylan was cleared, and Harnich was actually the one that proved that found the the files that positively placed him in San Francisco. And he speculated that when Eatwell wrote her book, she either didn't find this information or completely ignored it which is something you can do whether or not you believe there was any police corruption going on that caused this case to remain unsolved there were so many other factors surrounding this case that made it all the more difficult for them to solve one of which being the heavy involvement of not just the press but the public as well and the media yeah Mm -hmm. even in 1947 i can't even imagine if something like this happened today it would be over. It would be all over the place immediately, and there would be they would have no chance. Yeah. The and the tabloids back then were basically. I like to imagine them like when you pull up your Facebook feed. That's what like the tabloid looks like. Mm-hmm. It's just some crazy stuff that somebody thought up. Nothing is substantiated. It's just I mean, it's crazy. But according to Anne Marie Di Stefano of the Portland Tribune, so many unsubstantiated stories went around about short over the years like she was a prostitute she was frigid she was pregnant she was a lesbian in addition to these rumors being thrown around numerous people contacted the police and the newspapers claiming that they had seen elizabeth short during her missing week which was the period of time between the last time manley saw her on january 9th and the discovery of her body on january 15th police and da investigators ruled out each claim of a sighting one by one most of the time, it was just someone mistaking another woman for Short. And to this day, Short's whereabouts in those days leading up to her murder are unknown. 
Many true crime books claim that Short lived or visited Los Angeles multiple times in the mid-1940s, including John Gilmore in his book Severed. Gilmore actually claims that Short worked at the Hollywood Canteen, but this has since been disputed by Harnage, who will keep point- pulling back up. Harnage is one of my favorites in this case, just because, again, he's a retired copy editor from the Times that's just like, nope, that's wrong. <laughs> nope. I love him. So... Harnich explains that Short did not live in L.A. until after the canteen closed in 1945. Harnich also publicly declared Gilmore's book 25% mistakes and 50% fiction. So he gives it five stars. Harnich also made sure to discount the rumor that Short was a prostitute. According to Harnich, the rumor first started when Short was called a prostitute in John Gregory Dunn's 1977 novel True Confessions, which was partially based on this crime. Harnage claims that the grand jury proved there was no existing evidence pointing to Short being a prostitute. The autopsy also put to rest the rumors that she was pregnant since it proved that Short was not pregnant at the time of the murder and had, in fact, never once been pregnant. She was only 22. Another rumor claimed that Short was not able to have sex because of a congenital defect that made her genitalia too small, which is something that could happen. But this was proven false, since three men that were questioned during the initial investigation admitted to engaging in sexual relations with Short. This rumor, however, led to another rumor after the deputy coroner told a reporter from the Herald Express that her small genitalia probably meant Short was not having sex with men. So this led the reporter to make the only other assumption you could possibly make, which is that Short was having sex with women, which is what led to the lesbian rumor. That's crazy. Yeah, I don't... Reporters in this age were absolutely insane. Despite all the rumors and media attention the case has had over the years, no one has been able to solve the case of the Black Dahlia. Short was laid to rest at the Mountain View Cemetery in Oakland, California. After her younger sisters grew up and moved away, Short's mother, Phoebe, moved to Oakland to be near her daughter's grave. She eventually returned to the East Coast in the 1970s, where she lived into her 90s. On February 2nd, 1947, just two weeks after Short's murder, Republican State Assemblyman C. Don Field was prompted by the case to introduce a bill that called for the creation of a sex offender registry. California would become the first U.S. state to make the registration of sex offenders mandatory because of the horrific murder of Elizabeth Short. So there is some silver lining that comes out of this. Oh, I'm Oh my god. To this day, Short's murder has been described as one of the most brutal and culturally enduring crimes in American history. Time magazine even listed it as one of the most infamous unsolved cases in the world. Frustratingly, all of this means that we will probably never know who the real murderer is behind the case of the Black Dahlia. I have chills and I want to cry. I'm sorry. I know that was a lot of information and some of it seems unnecessary, but when I started researching this, I found so much more than I'm going to tell you, honestly, when they, when, who is it? Mountain Danny, Mountain Danny, when he suggested it, I knew that she had been cut in half and that was it. That was all I knew about Mm -hmm. her. And when I started looking into it, uh, it, it blew up. It was, I mean, there's so much out there. There's so many theories. It's and like if you plug in John Bonet Ramsey to Google, it's yeah. it's so. And there's so many like good theories. Yeah, like, I try to include right now the good to, ones. I'm trying. I'm sitting here right now trying to figure out who I think did it, and there's like, I don't know. 
Yeah, there's I I had a lot for me, the one that held the most water was the idea that she knew something and she knew something she wasn't supposed to know and the LAPD covered it up. Like the Mark Hansen um and Sergeant Finnis Brown thing. That might have that held a lot of water until I learned more about George Hodel. Yeah. I just don't see a connection there. Yeah. He has the means to do it, but I don't think he has the motive. Right. That's what it's interesting because we're listening to, um, if you don't know, uh, JK Rowling moonlights as a mystery writer, um, and goes by Robert Galbraith and they're fantastic mystery novels. And the detective in those, his name is CB strike. And he says means an opportunity. And so I was like, means an opportunity. I mean, George Hodel was in the area. He'd lived in L.A. his entire life. So it's not impossible to think that he might have run across Elizabeth Short and just thought, oh, this is what I'm going to do tonight. You know, I I don't know why he would have done it. But John actually yesterday I said, I just can't figure out why. And John said, motive is for lawyers. <laughs> so he's not wrong. Yeah. Um, oh, I just. But I think, yeah. So the most likely suspects still listed are um, another doctor who I couldn't find any actual theories on. George Hodel and Mark Hansen. So. Yeah, I think. I mean, obviously. Like sh- the Mark Hansen journal is like the mm-hmm. huge. Like. It had to be somebody that, I mean, I guess maybe she, if she, like she had connections to him, maybe she took it or something and it was on her. But like, I don't yeah. know that part. You know what I just thought of? And I did just think of this. So it could be what it could have been is that Mark Hansen was with her and then left the planner with her and then somebody else put it in her belongings yeah so uh, like he might not have any connection to this at all except for that he knew her and yeah with her i really think that the only thing keeping him on the suspect list is the fact that the planner was was sent to the to the press i think that for me the idea that george hodell did it really holds a lot of water because he was so freaking smart it's yeah and he has the like I don't know. I feel like I always get caught up in the science. Mm-hmm. Did Mark Hansen have the ability to literally cut somebody in half with that much precision? He did. And it was revealed that he went to medical school in oh, Sweden. Right, right. But I don't know the extent of his training. I, the extent of his training. I, mm-hmm. we do know that Steve Hodell, not Steve, Steve Hodell couldn't do it, that George Hodell had his skills to do this right so i also think that the amount of injuries that she sustained i think it's also somebody that had to have known that oh this won't kill her this won't kill her but this will yeah like she was tortured oh yeah so that's why the fact that the press printed that i would i would imagine that the press printed that before it had uh, well that wasn't released hmm Obviously, I don't think that a lot of the autopsy was released, but she, yeah, she was definitely tortured. 
So this wasn't a pleasant one. And I'm sorry that I couldn't give you any answers, but Danny was right. This was a really crazy case. And I'm glad that he got me into it. It's taken two weeks of (laughs) intermittent research while I have downtime at work. So... Yeah, that was crazy. I can't believe I had never heard about that before. It's I did not know the extent of insanity that was involved yeah. in the Black Dahlia. I mean, also, I there are people that know about it. And Steve Hodell in the Root of Evil podcast says that if you talk to anybody and go, oh, the Black Dahlia, they'll be like, oh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. But if you say Elizabeth Short, they won't know. Mm-hmm. So like I... Talk, told my mom like yeah the black dahlia it's crazy and it's crazy that it's still unsolved and she said wait it's not solved or isn't there like a movie about it and i said yeah there's tons yeah there's tons of books there's tons of movies there's because it's it's really really gruesome mm-hmm. so the I forget what kind of expert he is and even his name, but there's somebody else in the Root of Evil podcast that says, you know, this was like entertaining in the 40s. Yeah, but it's so sick. Like this is... It's really sick. This is like one of the worst ones I think we've... Like (laughs) good good episode, but bad. No, yeah, it was... It's it's the definitely the most gruesome one Mm. we've ever covered and it probably will be. I think it's the grossest, most disgusting crime I've ever heard of in American history. I think there are really, really bad people out there. But whoever this guy is, is the worst. I hate him. Yeah. So if you want to tell us your theories, I would love to hear them. Please send them to deaddrunkpod at gmail.com or you can send them to our Instagram or send us or tag us in the pictures of your drinks at deaddrunkcrime you can actually tweet us too tweet us some stories tweet us reddit theories at deaddrunkcrime we will get your notification even though we don't tweet we have it downloaded we have twitter we have the tweeters (laughs) we have it (laughs) and you can check out our website where this whole case will be written up and you can comment on it or read through it or dive into the sources yourself but be warned it's it's a rabbit hole Mm -hmm. but you can find that at deaddrunkpodcast.com there's no homes there's no blogs it's a real pod it's It's a a real (laughs) it's a real real podcast podcast. (laughs) and it's a real website you guys (laughs) wonderful all right so i feel like we needed a really good caboose today after that so i found definitely light-hearted one yeah so i found a buzzfeed quiz it's not really a quiz it's more of a poll i guess um in a mythical world where disney characters fought each other who would win yes and so basically we're going to debate who would win in a fight out of these disney characters okay the first one is elsa versus maleficent oh maleficent why do you think maleficent because she's just so i think elsa has a more caring nature than maleficent does maleficent is like no i don't even care i mean if you didn't think that before let's take out of the running the angelina jolie movies i've never seen them so that's okay there i mean i haven't seen the second one but the first one's actually pretty good okay but taking into okay only considering the 1930s or 40s cartoon so we're not considering descendants either 
No. <laughs> Where Kristen Chenoweth plays. Maleficent. I couldn't even stop. <laughs> oh. Girl, you're not. You don't fit in that role. No, she does not. But no, only the animated film Maleficent. Yeah. Yeah. That one would win. Okay. For but sure. Elsa has she wasn't invited. Powers. Okay. But she wasn't invited to a baby shower and just decided to murder that baby. That woman is a take no prisoners kind of woman. That's true. She but can also Elsa could literally just be like, dragon. but Elsa could just be like, and freeze the dragon. And then, but Maleficent can breathe fire from inside. And then, get Oh, maybe out it could cancel out the, mm-hmm. the ice powers. Yeah. Maleficent also has but like no, a but bunch only of love idiot can, followers. Only love can thaw a frozen heart. And she has no love in her heart. Maleficent's heart wouldn't be frozen though. Like it's just the outside. Of her what, body. If she, what if Elsa froze her heart? Okay, then yeah, I guess. But if you're going to shoot icicles through hearts, then that's just an instant KO, you know? <laughs> I guess. All right. That so, was a really tough so one. Maleficent, we're going to say Maleficent? That's what I would say. You okay. could say Elsa. You have valid points. Actually, more people think Elsa. 54% say Elsa. 46% say Maleficent. Mm. All right. <clears throat> oh, well, I understand why they were put up against each other. Okay. Yeah. All right. Next one. <laughs> Is Doug from Up versus Miko from Pocahontas? Oh, for sure, Miko. It's Miko. Miko is smart. Miko could have rabies, right, and bite him, and then he's done. Well, yes. Like <laughs> if you think about a dog and a and a raccoon, the yeah, raccoon's well, gonna win. I don't. I don't think in most instances the raccoon would win. If I it think had it would rabies. depend on the dog. Oh, if it had rabies, maybe. But okay, but Doug can talk though. But Doug is stupid. He's stupid. Right, it doesn't so matter we're, if we're he can talk. Miko. If he talks, yeah. he'd just be like, "Hello, friend," and then Miko would shoot him with an arrow. Squirrel. Miko is. <laughs> and then Miko's like, "That's my chance." <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sixty-three percent agree with us. Yeah. All right. Who would win in a fight? Sully from Monsters Inc. or Kronk from uh, Emperor's New Groove. I Sully is still twice the size of Kronk. Probably, and he's a literal monster. But he's not good at scaring people. He's very fuzzy. He's good at scaring people. What? He becomes Sully? best friends with a three-year-old kid. Yeah, but that's just because like he has a heart. He's the top scarer on the scare floor. Okay. Is he? Yeah, he's better than Randall for All most right. of the movie. Alright, fine. Yeah, 81% agree with you. Fine. I'm sorry to say I really love Kronk. Oh, this one is interesting. Hmm. Buzz Lightyear versus Remy from Ratatouille. Buzz Lightyear, right? Like, 100% Buzz Lightyear? Yeah. Like, Remy, what's Remy going to do? Fucking cook him a meal? <laughs> I don't understand. Uh, yeah, I don't. Yeah. Is it just because of their size that they were putting them against each other? I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Buzz Lightyear. Oh, yeah. this one. Mulan versus Mr. Incredible. Oh, I say Mulan. I also say Mulan. I love Mulan. Oh, that one's 50-50. Really? I love Mulan. Mulan is awesome. But I, I think I that Mr. Incredible could could take her. I just don't think that... No, she's too badass. She's smarter. Yeah, That's she's, she's smarter. You're right. Yeah. All right. Jafar versus Hercules. <laughs> Jafar. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> Herc. Oh, wow. 80% of people think Hercules. I bet Jafar would, though. Really? I mean, Hercules could just, like, uppercut him in the face and that it would be over. Ooh, here's one. Gaston versus Tarzan. Ooh. Oh, that one's tough. I think 
I think Tarzan would Yeah, win. I think Tarzan too. Yeah, 84% agree mm-hmm. with us. Gaston is just, he's He's, he's got big, glamour muscles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he can't do anything with his muscles. Ralph from Wreck-It Ralph versus Pocahontas. What? Yeah, I don't even understand. Are either of them going to fight? Pocahontas mean, wouldn't fight. Ralph would definitely win and Pocahontas would stand there and be like, take me. I will <laughs> follow the wind and become a tree. Okay, Simba versus Stitch. Okay, Simba, right? I was going to say Stitch. Really? I just think that Stitch can move faster than Simba could catch him. Okay, but that doesn't mean that Stitch can kill Simba. Oh, oh, Simba then. Like yeah. winning a fight. I forgot what we were saying. Winning a, yeah. Oh, people think Stitch. I don't know. Oh. I think Simba. I don't know. Simba just has the the, the size on him. Yeah, but I don't know. Stitch is also an alien, so I don't know. Yeah, Stitch actually has like six arms, I think, or mm. something. So he could yeah. probably. Yeah, that's true. Um, Rapunzel versus Judy Hopps from Zootopia. Rapunzel. You think so? Oh, I don't know. Judy Hopps was kind of I capable. love Judy Hopps. Judy I don't Hopps feel like smart. Rapunzel would fight her. So, yeah, I guess she would win. You're right. I feel like Judy Hopps is a police officer. Oh. 64% think Rapunzel. Why? Um, I think... Um, so my initial thought... Thing? No, my initial thought was that's a rabbit. So if... <laughs> so if she did uh, have a frying pan, she just hit that that's rabbit. That's true. That's true. Now I that mean, you mention it. If she's a cop at the end of the day, that's <laughs> she's still, still a, a rabbit. rabbit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. Merida or Peter Pan? Confession. Merida. I've never seen Brave. <gasps> so we're saying Merida? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. 82% agree. You have to watch Brave. Tigger versus the... I'm skipping that one. That's so fucking stupid. (laughs) Tigger versus the magic carpet. When would... No. The magic carpet would win 100%. Well, yeah, but I don't fucking care. All right. (laughs) Bruce from um, Finding Nemo or Ursula. That's a good one. I, s- I think Ursula. I think so too. Ursula has eight tentacles. Does plus Bruce magical end up powers. being nice to them? He is nice. Fish are friends, friends not, not food. food. Yeah, so it would be Ursula. Ursula's a fucking evil sea witch. Mm-hmm. Um, Robin Hood versus Flynn Rider. Flynn Rider. I think that Robin Hood was pretty it's good, pretty but even. Flynn was better, yeah. yeah. Uh, Hades or the genie? Hades. You think so? Oh, yeah. I love the genie. I love the genie, too, but genie is just... He doesn't have the power level that James Woods has. <laughs> yeah, well, 68% of people think the genie. Really? Well, he can, like, transform into different things, and he can grant wishes and stuff. He, he has like, He has powders. Powders? He has powers. <laughs> he has powder. Hades has powers, too. He's yeah, a god. I, I guess... That one, that that one's not that cut and dry. I don't know why I'm acting like it is. I really don't know who would win. It's just, I would think. My thinking is with these is if it's an evil character versus a good one, the evil one would go for the kill, right. and the good one. Well, I guess it's who fight. would win in a fight. Yeah, so that's what I I'm guess saying. It's not like who would die? <laughs> is that Hades? Hades would be like, oh yeah, I could take this guy, and the genie would be like, why are we fighting? Yeah, I guess so. That's my thing. I'm thinking too much about it. I should really just be taking them on their fighting traits. Mm. 
Well, that was it. That was the last one. Oh, that was it? Oh. I didn't realize it was the last one. That, was, that wasn't a good last one. This reminds me of a game that I played when I studied abroad in my class where we, it was like the hot air balloon thing. And you each had a, a character that you had to like debate for. And we did like Harry Potter, Doctor Who, like Sherlock Holmes, like James Bond, whatever. Like they're all in a hot air balloon and you have to decide like, like the hot air balloons going down and like which one do you boot off first? Like which is the least useful? And then you have to like debate until there's one person left. Okay. Who are my choices? Let's go with Harry Potter. I, I don't think Sherlock Holmes there. It was like Harry Potter, James Bond, Doctor Who. Um, I'll just do those three. Okay. So I think the least useful in that instance is James Bond, because one of one of the other people on the hot. I'm not saying he's useless in but the, the other two people could like the fly other, through the right. Air. The other two people can fly. They can make you fly. They can make you fall slower. Right. I mean, really, Harry would. I mean, the doctor has like science and his sonic screwdriver, but like Harry can actually make you fall slower or keep the balloon afloat or I would honestly get rid of Doctor Who and James Bond. Just yeah. push them both off. Harry, I mean, yeah, Harry would be. If Harry could remember any goddamn spells, then yeah, yeah he would he be useful. If he could Accio broomstick. <laughs> That's one of his one things. He has like a <laughs> handful of things that he does. Yeah. And one of them is Accio and Expelliarmus. <laughs> yep. And if the Dementors are there, Expecto Patronum. <laughs> And then we're we're good. He's good. He's good. Yeah. Um. All right. Bye, mom. Bye. Thomas. <laughs> yeah. And if the Dementors are there, expecto patronum. <laughs> and then we're we're good. He's good. He's good. Yeah. Um. All right. Bye, mom. Bye. <laughs> of course, Berzinger initially thought it was just a werewolf no a mannequin oh. <laughs> <laughs> you're telling me to say the word okay <laughs> she thought it was a werewolf <laughs> i'm so sorry <laughs> oh oh no <laughs> can we try that again <laughs> <laughs> I want them to know how hard I'm laughing. I thought it was the werewolf. That's the second, that's the second that's the sentence. So upon spotting the woman's body, Berzinger initially thought it was a mannequin. Yeah, because they all do. And it's never a mannequin. No. No. It didn't take her long to realize. And as soon as she did... I'm really sorry to say this. We didn't talk about the drink at all. <laughs> oh, fuck <laughs> me. <laughs> oh, my God, you guys. <laughs> oh, my God. I totally forgot the drunk part of our <laughs> podcast. Okay. Have you ever looked Or not at that. <laughs> have you ever looked at a can and realized that, like... The hole is not in the same place on every can. Are you okay? Like, <laughs> look, the hole is on a di- in a different place on each can. Yeah, they just, like, go through, like, a machine. They could be facing any direction. I just need to get to the seltzer inside. So, like, I don't really, I don't even give a shit. Okay, but, like, this is bothering me a lot.